that was the ABA. You know, it, it was the times. You know, think about the late '60s and early '70s, the fashions of the time. Uh, here's this ABA with this red, white, and blue ball and a three-point shot that changed the way the game was played. You know, tempo basketball, not too much concern about defense, just trying to outscore each other. You know, the music and everything that was kind of earmarking the late sixties, early seventies, you know, that factored into the ABA and the fans were reading it up. So yeah, you had a player who was a bar owner. You had players with huge afros in Miami. You had the ball girls wearing bikinis. You had uh, all kinds of weird promotions, things that people wouldn't even conceive of today. But yeah, that was all pretty typical of the ABA. Welcome to good seats. Still available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, everybody. How you doing? It's Tim Hanlon, your humble and congenial host yet again for another fun-filled episode of Good Seats, still available, our curious little podcast journey into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you so much for putting us in your earbuds again, and uh, we hope to... Uh, titillate and uh, and amaze and entertain you with some uh, some fun conversation around uh, a, a league that uh, we need to spend more time on, and that's the ABA, the American Basketball Association. Yes, the bouncing red, white, and blue ball and all from 1967 until 1976, uh, arguably one of the most colorful and uh, just all-and-out wacky leagues ever to uh, grace uh, the American sports landscape. And today's guest uh, is our friend Mark Monteith, uh, and uh, we are going to spend a, a good hour and change talking about arguably one of the most successful teams in the ABA, and frankly, since then, one of being the only being one of the only four teams that made the uh, merger uh, transfer into the NBA in 1976. That being the Indiana Pacers. Um, I learned a lot in this conversation. You will too. Uh, and um, the reason why Mark is especially interesting is because he's just authored, wait for it, a book. Yes, it came out a couple of months ago about the early days, the formative years, and the first couple of seasons of the Indiana Pacers in their ABA journey. Uh, the book is called Reborn, the Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis. Uh, and uh, it's a, a dynamite read. It's uh, it's chock full of uh, direct uh, interviews and statistics and some uh, never before seen photos. And, and Mark's a guy who knows just about everything there is to know about the Pacers. Not only is he an Indiana Indianapolis native, uh, but uh, he has been a longtime sports writer for the Indianapolis Star, uh, was a beat reporter for the Pacers for a good 12 to 15 years or so uh, during the uh, during the 90s and the, the Reggie Miller days. Uh, and of course, like many uh, in in the uh, Indianapolis area, as a kid, became smitten with the Pacers in their ABA days, uh, going to games and dreaming about, uh, you know, what it might like to be actually to cover this team uh, as a professional journalist, uh, as an adult. And sure enough, that's what he became. That's what he did. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in our conversation with Mark Monteith uh, in just a couple of seconds about the uh, early days of the ABA's Indiana Pacers. Uh, before we get to our conversation with Mark, I want to say hello and thank you to our brand new sponsor. Yes, sportshistorycollectibles.com is that sponsor. And uh, look, if you're looking for uh, some uh, fun and interesting and uh, collectible memorabilia from some of the teams and the leagues that we talk about on this here very show, then sportshistorycollectibles.com 
Amazon.com is the place uh, to peruse. You will see plenty of items uh, with new stuff just about every week from all the sports that we talk about and then some, uh, both leagues uh, current and no longer with us, right? So it's hockey, uh, basketball, you name it, soccer, baseball, football, uh, some tennis in there, there's Olympic stuff in there, you name it. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com has got some really cool stuff, and I urge you to check it out. I think our listeners will especially uh, find it to be a treasure trove, not only of uh, history and nostalgia, but frankly, some stuff that you too can take home for yourselves. And uh, as a special promotional offer, uh, if you uh, use the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout, you'll get 15% off your purchase. That's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Use the promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off your purchases uh, at uh, our friends, our new friends, our new sponsor, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Give them a try. Tell them we sent you, and uh, I am sure that you will enjoy it. And our thanks to our friend Dean Mitchell, the proprietor of said site, and uh, hopefully we'll have a few more fun promotional uh, offerings uh, in the weeks and months to come. Again, uh, again, it's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Thank you, Dean, and thank you, friends, for checking it out. We appreciate it. All right, so let's uh, segue into our interesting conversation, our chat, uh, with uh, longtime Indianapolis uh, sports writer, a beat reporter, and author Mark Monteith and our conversation about the Indiana Pacers of the old ABA. I grew up in Indianapolis, and I was 12 years old when the ABA was formed in 1967. Uh, so, you know, 12 years old is kind of a golden age for being a sports fan, I think. You're old enough to understand what's going on and read the newspapers or whatever, but naive enough, you know, to... Uh, not be aware of what might be going on behind the scenes, that kind of thing. That's kind of an age when you can kind of idolize athletes, I think. So, you know, I was a big fan. I went to some of the games that first season. Uh, I played high school basketball. So, you know, I was in love from the game. I'm one of the typical Hoosiers, I guess, who grew up going to high school games when I was five and six years old and watching the state tournament on television. So it was always a big deal for me. And when Indianapolis got a professional team, well, that was just tremendous, you know, a whole nother level of basketball to follow here. And um, was interested in becoming a newspaper sports writer when I was 12, 13 years old. If you had asked me what I wanted to do, that would have been my answer. And I got a journalism degree from Indiana University and got newspapers, newspaper jobs starting out in Marion, Indiana, and then Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then uh, moved to Indianapolis and still worked for the Fort Wayne paper. And then later uh, got a job with the Indianapolis Stars. So I covered the Pacers for 12 years as a beat writer, which is actually a record for the star. Nobody else has done it that long. And I'm kind of proud of that because it's a grind of a job. And then I, I also though covered a lot of games and was around a lot before and after I was a beat writer. So you know, I go back to the first year of the Pacers and have kind of been on top of things almost all the way through their existence. And now uh, in a what well, I, I consider myself a freelance writer. I write for Pacers.com, their website, uh, mostly a feature writer, column, this type of thing. And uh, have just written the book as well, Reborn, the Pacers, and the Return to Pro Basketball to Indianapolis, which covers the formation of the franchise in the first two seasons. Uh, so that's where I am today. Uh, 
So what? Uh, so obviously, so in, in many respects, almost a dream come true, right? Becoming a, a beat reporter for a team that you uh, sort of fell in love with as a kid, uh, dovetailing with your interest in being a being a journalist. Um, uh, what uh, what sort of uh, tickled your fancy enough that uh, beyond sort of the daily grind of of covering this at the time, then obviously a, a successful NBA franchise, uh, it convinced you to sort of go back and sort of rewind and and go back some to the early days and the formative days uh, of the franchise when it was a fledgling member of this new upstart American Basketball Association. Yeah, I I wrote a book in 1988 uh, on Purdue's basketball season called Passion Play. It was was a, a successful book, and that was an inside account of their season that year when they won the Big Ten. I had total access to the program, to the coaches' meetings, the locker room. I was on the bench during games and so forth. And after that experience, although I was burned out for a while, I wanted to do another book. And my thought then, this is in the early 90s, like around 1990. I thought, you know, I should do a book on the ABA Pacers because uh, I'd, you know, gone to a lot of those games. I knew how exciting it was for the city. I knew what it meant for the city. And that was my first idea. And then as I began researching, I began learning about the teams before the Pacers going all the way back to the early 30s. You know, the first, in my mind, real pro basketball team in Indianapolis was the Kautskis, which was owned by a grocery store owner, uh, Frank Kautsky. And Johnny Wooden played for him beginning in 1932, and they lasted up to the late 40s. And they evolved into the Jets, and they evolved into the Olympians. And in the early 90s, those guys were still alive. You know, I interviewed a lot of those guys uh, and got their stories. And I got to think, okay, I'll do something on the beginnings of pro basketball in Indianapolis all the way through the ABA years. Well, <laughs> that's a long time period. And if you're going to get into any detail and tell the stories, we're talking like a thousand page book or something. And, you know, I didn't want to do that. So as time went on, I gathered more information. It narrowed to a focus of the formation of the Pacers and the first couple seasons when they got off the ground. You know, my book is 400 pages and it really deals with the events leading up to the formation of the franchise, how it came together and how they got it off the ground. All the things that had to happen for them to survive their first couple of years. All right. Well, let's get it just in. kind of evolved that way. Yeah, let's get into that because that's red meat for uh, uh, this little here podcast. Um, and you know, we uh, we did a, a previous episode with um, our friend Murray Nelson uh, in episode thirty four about the uh, National Basketball League, in which we delve into some of those uh, formative years, uh, which the uh, Kowalskis were were part of, and the industrial leagues that kind of sort of preceded uh, it as well. So uh, that's a that's a good listen for those who uh, are interested in this topic and want to go a little bit further back, but. Perhaps um, maybe you can enlighten us into uh, what the sort of state of Indiana and the sport of basketball, uh, the, the sort of dramatic love affair that sort of exists. And then, then maybe we can sort of slide into uh, those years that existed uh, or the, the, those uh, years that did not exist, I guess, professionally uh, with the sport of basketball after the Olympians folded in 1953 uh, and uh, the beginnings of the uh, Pacers in 1967. That's a it's a big chunk of time to not have a professional franchise in a basketball mad state. No? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The Olympians for a brief time were really popular. They played at Butler, Butler Fieldhouse, and they drew big crowds because they had a really good team. And they had two players, Ralph Beard and Alex Groza, who would probably be in the Hall of Fame today. But they were they were banned from pro basketball because they had uh, participated in 
uh, a scandal uh, at the University of Kentucky, uh, particularly Grosa. They took money from gamblers. Uh, I think the truth is that Grosa did influence the outcome of games. Beard did not, but he took money from Grosa, sent it home to mom, so he was implicated, and they were both banned from the NBA. So the Olympians a year or two later fold because they're not very good and they're stained. So for 14 years, yeah, Indianapolis uh, did not have pro basketball. So the landscape was high school basketball, which was huge in the 50s and 60s. The state tournament was a really big deal then. And that's really how I fell in love with it, watching the state tournament on television. You had Oscar Robertson coming out of Indianapolis. You had the whole, Bobby Plump and Milan story was led to the movie Hoosers. You know, you had great moments, but it was high school basketball and Butler University. And Butler had a good program, and they would play a good schedule. And it seemed like every year they might knock off a Big Ten team, you know, Michigan, Michigan State, IU, or Purdue. And so, you know, that's kind of what it was. It was high schools and Butler if you were living in Indianapolis. And that really wasn't enough as the city was growing and growing throughout the 60s. And there was an effort going on to get a major league franchise of some kind in Indianapolis, whether it was going to be basketball, baseball, football, something. Uh, There was just a dedicated group of local people, local leaders who were trying to do that. Uh, The Cincinnati Royals were coming over about one game a year throughout the late 50s and 60s. Uh, to play a game because Oscar Robertson, Indianapolis's own, was on the Royals. So they would come over and play a game at the Fairgrounds Coliseum and draw pretty well. One year they lost to the Lakers with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor in, in a game in which the Lakers clinched the Western Division Championship. And it's funny, growing up here, I, I wasn't aware of those. I'm wondering, like, how did I not know these games, these NBA games, were going on at the Coliseum? I must have seen it in the paper. But it didn't stick with me. I'm wondering why didn't Dad take me to those games? You know, so it was um, there. Were, there was like one game a year going on, and they drew pretty well. And it was too expensive though for anyone here to get an expansion franchise. Uh, too expensive to get a team like the Royals to move. Although there were conversations about that, so it wasn't until the ABA was formed that it became affordable enough for anyone here to buy a franchise. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. You think that the NBA would have uh, tried to, or the, the the powers that be would have tried to figure it out some kind of way aside from sort of uh, uh, you know borrowing the the Cincinnati Royals for for a game or two, uh, given just how just deep and rich and rooted the sport of basketball uh, is and was around the state. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Fort Wayne had a franchise. Anderson had even had a franchise in the late 40s, early 50s. So, you know, pro basketball had been in Indiana. But, you know, the Olympians had left the stain. Uh, the NBA, kind of was for a while looked down on uh, because of that, the way it ended for them. And there just wasn't enough financial support for getting a team. You know, even a couple of years after the Olympians folded, there was still talk about, well, can Indianapolis get another team? It's a good market. You know, the Olympians drew well. Uh, but nobody either had the money or the interest to do that here. And uh, as the NBA grew, it became more and more expensive. You know, by the mid to, you know, like in 66, 67, you know, when the Chicago Bulls came in and then Seattle Supersonics, it cost, you know, a million dollars or more to buy an expansion franchise into the NBA. And nobody here was either able or willing to come up with that. So uh, people were just kind of stuck. And there was talk with the Royals 
about, well, maybe the Royals can play half their games in Indianapolis, but that was a bad idea. You know, you have to have a home. You can't, these teams that tried to have regional locations like they did in the ABA, you know, in North Carolina and other places, it doesn't work. You got to have one major city that you play out of. And uh, so it's good that they didn't try to split time with the Royals, but uh, it it was only because the ABA, you know, made franchises available for $6,000 down payment and then $30,000 check. That's the only reason Indianapolis was able to get into the game. All right. Well, let's talk about some of that, right? So uh, we're now sort of circa late 1966 or so, and the uh, rumblings of this sort of renegade challenger to the uh, state and uh, somewhat dowdy and, and our, uh, dark and dank uh, National Basketball Association uh, was running all around, and the idea was called the American Basketball Association. Perhaps you can uh, rewind us back to sort of that time generally, and then more more particularly the sort of how the uh, Indianapolis uh, entry uh, sort of came into being. Yeah, in 1966, um, you have to remember the AFL was succeeding. The AFL began in 1960 and grew and grew and forced a merger with the NFL. And they officially merged, I think it was in 1970, but they had agreed to a merger before that. So I think that planted the seed for some people, well, maybe a second basketball league could succeed because there was a market for one. There were only nine NBA teams through the sixties and some major markets did not have a team. And there were some really good college players, first team college, all Americans coming out, unable to make the NBA franchise because there just weren't that many jobs available. Veteran players were hanging on to their jobs and the new guys coming in weren't finding places to play. So uh, the major reason the ABA succeeded as long as it did was that there was a market for it. There was a need for it. So in 1966, a couple different people kind of came up with the idea simultaneously of starting a new league. I think one in California, one in New York. And they start nosing around, and they knew of Indiana's reputation as a basketball mecca. And they're contacting people here. Uh, I found a letter in 19, in September of 66 that was written to John DeVoe, who was one of the local leaders who was trying to get something going in Indianapolis, saying, you know, we'd like to meet, talk to you about this new league. And DeVoe's initial response was, well, look, I, I can't really help you because, you know, this city doesn't support minor league endeavors very well. Uh, I don't think it would work. But keep in touch, you know, as you go along here, you know, let's stay in touch and as time went on, DeVoe realized these guys were serious. They were having meetings. They were getting with George Mikan. Kind of, he had agreed verbally to be the commissioner. Uh, they were. They just kept going. They came to town and met with people. They were showing real interest, real serious interest in forming a new league. And really, the birth of the Pacers, if there's going to be one singular event, would have been a dinner at a country club in Lafayette, Indiana, about an hour north of Indianapolis where Purdue University is located. A man up there named Len Treese hosted an annual big game dinner where they would serve elk and bear and all kinds of exotic meats, I guess. And a couple guys from Indianapolis went to that. One of them, Bob Collins, the sports editor of the Indianapolis Star, he was probably the most powerful media figure in the state at the time. Uh, he went up with a local promoter, a guy named Bob Young, to this dinner, and they're sitting around a table, and Collins is talking about, you know, there's these guys who have been coming around town trying to start a new league called the ABA, and there's going to be a meeting in New York 
coming up before long. It's only going to take $6,000 to put dips on a franchise. You know, they're talking, no doubt drinking, and basically came down to, well, let's do it. <laughs> let's try this. And Joe Bannon, who was a banker in Lafayette, went to that meeting. I think he was planning to go to New York on business anyway. He went to that meeting and put down the money. And lo and behold, suddenly, Indianapolis was uh, recognized as a member of the American Basketball Association. That's crazy. It almost seems like it's a, a lost or a one, uh, you know, drinking bet, uh, you know, at a card game or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I could only imagine. I talked to Collins about that meeting, and I talked to one of the other people who was at the meeting. One of the, There were three Lafayette investors, uh, one of them Henry Ebershoff. And I talked with him. Uh, I really wish I could have gotten to Joe Bannon. Uh, he died in 2006, and I consider that a failure of mine not to get with him before he died. But um you know, it was just kind of a casual thing sitting around the table in Lafayette. You know, why would three guys in Lafayette want to invest in a pro basketball team in Indianapolis? But they did because it only took $1,000 a piece. It was basically, my understanding, half a dozen guys kicking in 1000 bucks a piece to get a franchise do you think they were this new league. Do you think they were surprised that they actually uh, were chosen or, or then or perhaps that – so it happens now what? I mean, okay, so they were successful. Now they got to actually put it together. Yeah, you know, I I think they you know, I don't think they were surprised. I think they were committed to trying to see it through. So there's a big article in the paper. I think or I think it's early February of '67. That you know, Indianapolis member of new pro basketball loop, the ABA. You know, up until then nobody had heard of it. Suddenly there's a big press conference in New York. George Mikan is there. He's going to be the new commissioner, although he hasn't signed a contract yet. And this new league is introduced, and there's going to be teams in Indianapolis and Pittsburgh and. You know, Anaheim, different places. The, some cities were announced as having franchises that did not wind up having franchises. But, you know, this new league is formed. And so, you know, this group in Indianapolis is formed. Investors are gathered. And the next big step is a meeting in New Orleans uh, a month or so later where, okay, now it's serious. You've got to put a check in for $30,000 to have a franchise. You know, this is how we're going to fund the league's operation. We've got to pay the commissioner. They finally agreed to a contract with George Mike, and that was the first step of the meeting in New Orleans. And then franchises had to commit to each sending a check later uh, by a certain date for $30,000. You're either in or you're out. And you know, that's when Kansas City dropped out. Uh, I think Denver suddenly came up with a franchise. Louisville at the last minute came up with a franchise. Milwaukee tried to get in uh, and wasn't able to, but 11 cities came in uh, to form the American Basketball Association there in 1967. No doubt with the plan and hope that, hey, within a couple of years, we'll force this merger with the NBA and the value of the franchises will skyrocket and we'll have a great investment. And that obviously didn't happen, but I'm sure that was in the back of their minds. But, you know, it took that. That was the big moment where you had to seriously commit and not only send that check for $30,000, but okay, you got to find an office. You got to get a staff. <laughs> you got to accumulate a roster somehow. You know, there's a lot of expenses that go with it. So that's when it became serious. Based on your research, are, are you, do you feel pretty confident that either the Pacers organization or it became the Pacers organization or the other sort of league founders and or franchise folks uh, successful getting a franchise, they, that they already had merger sort of uh, glimmer in their eye? Um, 
to to knowing that that would be sort of the end result, or do you think that's more hindsight than anything? Yeah, hard to say. I gotta believe that that was their hope, you know, because it's hard to start a new league. The ADL, as you're aware, had been in existence for a year and a half in the early '60s, folded at you know like at the end of December of the second year. So they knew that. So I gotta believe that that was the hope. You know, it was going to be hard to compete against the NBA. Uh, so I got to believe they felt like we'll get some players and get some of the best players out of college and enforce that merger. It was never stated, but early on the intention of the ABA owners, at least publicly was, we're not going to steal players from the NBA or try to, you know, sign their players away. We just want to get these kids out of college and build a new league. It seemed like they were trying to make nice with the NBA. Didn't take long before, <laughs> you know, Oakland stole Rick Barry from the NBA players were signed away from the NBA that was bound to happen but I think I just have to believe logically that at the beginning the uh, ABA owners were thinking you know we just got to hang in there for a couple three years and then we could uh, merge with the NBA well and clearly a recognition that there was uh, more talent out there than just the NBA could itself handle and uh, and a bunch of other uh, areas around the country where there wasn't uh, that was not lucky enough to have an NBA franchise that could uh, possibly support the pro game. And, and obviously, as you mentioned, the AFL and, you know, the WHA uh, was uh, a couple of years away from that. The NHL was finally looking at expansion westward. You know, so it seems like there was some real uh, understanding going on in, in, in the, the you know major sports world that uh, that there were, you know, other markets and other untilled uh, soils out there, shall we say, to, uh, you know, to actually uh, build and, and, and grow a sport. Yeah, no question. Think about it. Dallas did not have an NBA team. Houston did not have one. New Orleans, Denver, uh, you know, those are bigger markets than Indianapolis. Uh, Indianapolis and Louisville got one. Um, you know, Miami got a team, the, what, the second year of the ABA, not the first. Pittsburgh, you know, got an ABA team at the beginning, although it didn't last long. So, yeah, you know, you're talking major markets that – should be able to support a pro basketball team to, you know, they, some of these cities had hockey, some did not, but uh, it just seemed like the timing was right. You know, the sixties were a time when people were trying things, you know, and uh, taking chances, that type of thing. And, and, you know, showing a flair for trying something in a different way. So it just seemed like it all came together at the right time to form a new league. All right, so before we get to the actual first year, uh, what about that sort of major uh, uh, issue about naming the actual franchise, right? Uh, the nickname Pacers, and and I think actually, if I'm not mistaken, there was real debate between whether to call them Indianapolis or Indiana uh, Pacers. Well, not really debate. Uh, they came out at the very beginning. When they announced the franchise, they said right away, we're Indiana. Uh, the previous team, the Olympians and Kautskis, they had been Indianapolis, and their uniform said Indianapolis. Um, although I think Olympians just said Olympians, but, uh, no, they said from the beginning that we're Indiana. And I think their original intention was we're going to play games around the state. And in fact, the first year they played half a dozen games, home games in other locations. Uh, some of them at high school gymnasiums, if you can imagine pro basketball games being played at high school gymnasiums, but they were Indiana from the beginning because they wanted to be Indiana's team. Uh, but they came up with Pacers. It's kind of vague. Uh, there was a reference made at the press conference which announced the nickname, which is in June of 67, uh, talked about, you know, taking a fan poll, that type of thing, fans submitting uh, 
suggestions. I never saw anything in a newspaper asking for fans to mail in a suggestion for a nickname. I, and nobody seems to remember that, but different people have claimed that they were the ones who came up with Pacers, including the first general manager, Mike Storm. I've talked to other people who say, oh, my mother did it or this kind of thing. So it's very vague who exactly thought of Pacers. But it comes primarily from harness racing. You know, the Pacers were to play at the Fairgrounds Coliseum. Across the street from the Coliseum was a track, a harness racing track, also used for auto races, but primarily for harness racing. And a Pacer is a type of harness racehorse. There's trotters and there's pacers. And uh, so there's pacers. And it also related somewhat to the Indianapolis 500. You know, pacer is not an auto racing term, but you have the pace car. So it kind of fit together with that as well. So Mike Storn at the press conference said, we want to set the pace in basketball, in the American Basketball Association, that kind of thing. So uh, in the newspaper articles announcing uh, the nickname, nobody was given credit for thinking of it, uh, but it was certainly primarily a reference to harness racing and then uh, secondarily to auto racing. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly, entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com dot com slash good seats and now back to our conversation did you get any indication in your research uh, as this team the formative uh, months before the actual play began that they would actually become arguably the most successful franchise in the aba and and uh, along with the colonels of kentucky were the only teams to play uh, in their uh, same market for the entire duration of the league. Yeah, yeah, there were indications. I think the city was hungry for it. And they, uh, number one, they got great support in the newspapers. <laughs> I mean, it would be unethical today to support a new endeavor the way the newspapers supported the Pacers. They were rah-rah about the whole thing. They covered everything. Uh, Bob Collins, the, the star sports editor who uh, helped 
bring the group together that financed the Pacers. He didn't have money in it, uh, and I wouldn't say he was corrupt about it. He, but he certainly put out positive stories. Uh, about this new team, and they wrote a lot about every guy they signed, and there were constantly stories in the paper, no skepticism whatsoever toward the Pacers, and that was true for the afternoon paper as well, uh, and their sports editor, Wayne Fusen, by the way, whose son is now the president of the Pacers. Um, So they got the newspaper support. They had an open tryout in June uh, where about 150 people either were invited or came off the streets to try out for the team, Slick Leonard, you know, the longtime Pacer coach, uh, was one of the people who kind of oversaw the tryouts along with Clyde Lavelle. And all these guys came out and thought they could be a pro basketball player. They weeded them out very quickly. And then came and they had these scrimmages, you know, that week in June, I think it's the third week of June of 67. And two and 3,000 people were coming out for these scrimmages at the Coliseum and the different places. And I think that was the first indication that, man, people want to see something here. You know, it's not like there were a lot of big-name players in these scrimmages, not by any means. So that told you that there was great interest. And uh, I think it just kind of went on from there throughout the summer. A lot of stories in the newspaper uh, kind of gave fans interest. And uh, just the fact that there was a real hunger in the city to have something so-called big-time, you know, it, it kind of all came together and uh, made it work that first year. How many uh, in that sort of tryout scenario, how, how many were truly local products? Because I know we're not going to get into the later years of the Pacers as much, but uh, it did seem that some of the most successful players during the uh, the course of the Pacers' ABA run did indeed come from, either by happenstance or by design, from the great state of Indiana, either playing or having grown up there and played in high school and in, in college. Um, I, I almost wonder if that was part of the plan or – or maybe that was part of the ABA's uh, plan, too, to sort of have territorial rights for their franchises. Or maybe you can give some enlightenment into that if uh, if you could. Yeah, I think uh, Mike Storm, the first GM, did make it a point to have some homegrown talent. Obviously, you want to sell tickets and you want to have players on your roster who will uh, attract the fans. So um, really only a couple players, a few players came out of that tryout and they had been invited to the tryout. You had Jerry Harkness, who had been on Loyola's 63 championship team, come out of that tryout. He had written a letter and asked for a tryout. Um, uh, Medelicki, who was drafted but had uh, did not have a guaranteed contract, came out of that tryout. Uh, there's a guy, Bobby Joe Edmonds, you know, from Indianapolis, uh, came out of that tryout. Uh, the first Pacer team was kind of a Big Ten all-star team. You had, you know, players from about half the Big Ten teams on the original roster. You had, a, you know, Jimmy Rail from IU, uh, Matthew H. from Michigan State, Oliver Darden from Michigan, Ron Kozlicki from Northwestern, uh, Jimmy Dawson from Illinois. <laughs> you, were, you were having guys who had had success in college from the Big Ten conference where at least people knew who they were if you had followed college basketball. Uh, Ron Bonham from Indiana, Mr. Basketball, in 1960, uh, was on that first roster. He had played a couple of years with the Celtics, so you know he had some experience. Was All American in college. You had what did I think three guys? You had Bobby Joe Edmonds, who came out of high school in Indiana in 1959 on a state championship team. Uh, Jimmy Rail was Mr. Basketball in 1959. Ron Bonham was Mr. Basketball in 1960. 
the last player cut from the first Pacer team was Larry Humes, who was Mr. Basketball in 1962, and by the way, is now an usher at Pacer Games in his retirement. Um, you know, Jimmy Rail was an IU. Rail went on to graduate from IU in '63, so. You had those guys for local flavor. So between some a few state high school players and some Big Ten college players, they put together uh, a roster with a lot of recognizable names. Yeah, that's interesting, and it seems uh, uh, it seems almost masterful, right? In that, you know, you've got a state that's been uh, sort of basketball mad for for many many years. Uh, it almost feels almost more homegrown that way, not in terms of uh, not only the players, but also sort of uh, attaching themselves to the fans. Uh, to you know, uh, get uh, invested, if you will, into this team from the get-go, and I can't think of a better reason why than to sort of continue to root on some of their uh, their favorite hometown heroes. Right, no question, no question. <clears throat> the best players on the first team were not from Indiana, so we'll talk later. But uh, they certainly had an element there of guys who contributed and uh, helped attract fans out to the game. Probably the biggest name on the first team was Jimmy Rail going into it, having been Mr. Basketball in a high score and then having played at Indiana. Although he had been out of college for four years when the ABA was formed, he had been playing AAU ball in Akron, Ohio for the Goodyear team. Um, still a big name, and he didn't come out of the tryout. He was signed to a non-guaranteed contract after uh, that initial tryout. But... Uh, he was probably the biggest name. He wasn't a starter uh, that first year most of the time, but still a name, and there were a few other guys who were names as well. Yeah, that, uh, that also was interesting. And, and, and also, similarly, you had uh, the first, uh, I believe, actual signing of the team was uh, another AAU player, the name of Roger Brown. Uh, but that's an interesting story because Roger Brown, uh, otherwise known as the Raja, um, had, uh-huh. been, had been blacklisted from the NBA. Maybe you can get into... Uh, some of the background there and why Brown was so high on uh, the draft board for the Pacers in their first ever ABA draft. Yeah. Roger Brown um, was one of the great players to come out of New York city and had gotten to Dayton university of Dayton as a freshman, but he kind of like Ralph Beard uh, for the Olympians in the early fifties was implicated in gambling. You know, Roger Brown knew uh, a guy named Jack Molinas, who was a gambler and a fixer of college basketball games. And, you know, Molinas made it a point to get to know the great high school players to establish a relationship with them. So he would buy lunch for guys like Roger Brown and Connie Hawkins. He might loan them his car. You know, he'd find these poor kids out of the ghetto in a city like New York and befriend them and do favors for them and uh, establish a relationship. So Brown knew this guy, but he was a high school kid. He wasn't shaving points. <laughs> you know, he, he maybe people bought him lunch or whatever, but he wasn't on the take. Uh, but he went to Dayton, uh, played as a freshman when uh, freshmen were not eligible for varsity competition, and then was banned by the NBA and NCAA. <laughs> which is amazing to think about now, but there, it was really a politically motivated thing. You had people wanting to be district attorneys who were trying to be tough on crime and make an example of people. And Roger Brown got caught up in that. So he stayed in Dayton had, you know, he came from this absolute poverty, in Brooklyn. When he gets blacklisted, he stays in Dayton, uh, moves in with an elderly couple, older couple, um, and works for General Motors. He's working night shift in a General Motors factory. But he, in the summers, would play uh, AAU games and just go to the playgrounds and would wind up playing with some members of the Cincinnati Royals, including Oscar Robertson. 
So when the Pacers were formed, their first thought for a coach was to get Oscar Robertson to be a player coach. And they made him, you know, they got together and came up. They're going to offer him about $100,000 to be a player coach and use of a car. And there were all kinds of perks they were trying to throw together to lure Oscar Robertson to back to Indianapolis to be a player coach for the Pacers because he was a free agent at the time with the Royals. Oscar really just kind of used that interest to help his negotiation with the Royals, but the Pacers were interested. Um, but Roger told them, look, uh, you know, go get Roger Brown. You know, Oscar had played with him. There's a guy named Roger Brown. I played with him. He's really good. Go get him. And lo and behold, Mike Storm, he claims that the day he signed this contract to be the GM, drove right to and talked to Roger Brown. And Roger was married. His wife was a nurse. They were doing okay. He had a good factory job, and she was a nurse, and they were getting by just fine. Uh, both work a night shift. And the patients come calling, and Roger Brown naturally is skeptical, uh, not very trusting of authority figures. And some guy shows up on his doorstep and uh, is making this offer to come join this new team in the new league. <laughs> but they went for it. They had nothing to lose. They lined his wife up with a nursing job in Indianapolis. And for what I'm told, he was told by the people at the factory that, look, if it doesn't work out, you can come back and get your job back. So they felt like they had nothing to lose and moved to Indianapolis. And what's kind of funny looking back is that the, the Pacers never announced they had signed Roger Brown. You know, they, I think, were really worried about Emmys. They didn't want to put out word that, yeah, we just signed this guy who got banned from the NBA. Can't play college ball either, you know. I mean, nobody would have been impressed by that. Uh, wasn't going to sell tickets. So Roger came to those initial tryouts and really stood out. He did not have a guaranteed contract either, is my understanding. And the first time his name appeared in the paper was out of these tryouts in June, where people were saying, oh, Roger Brown's really good. He stood out. And nobody knew who Roger Brown was, but that's when he first kind of uh, came to the attention of the general public. So the Pacers got lucky in a lot of different ways those first few years and couldn't have possibly gotten luckier than to get a future Hall of Fame player out of a factory in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, according to my notes, he was uh, the first ABA player, the first career ABA player to be nominated and inducted into the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame. Yeah, player. he was. He was. Yes, he was. And, you know, he was a great talent. Uh, by today's standards, with today's media, he'd be criticized a lot for inconsistent effort, that type of thing. He wasn't the guy to dive on the floor for a loose ball. He would publicly admit that he would coast a bit until the playoffs when it was money time. <laughs> you know, even when money wasn't big. In the early years of the ABA, he would talk about this is money time. Uh, but he was a hugely skilled player, a great clutch player, and the kind of guy when you got to know him, you really liked him. All of the teammates I've talked with just really liked Roger a lot, even though he was kind of aloof with people he didn't know. So uh, just a huge break for the Pacers and you know, really a huge break for Roger Brown. He would have lived out his life working in a factory in Dayton, Ohio if it wasn't for the uh, formation of the ABA. And he became the all-time leading scorer and a uh, player with minutes played for the Pacers really? during their, their franchise history. So it's a pretty interesting. All right, so who's uh, who's Larry Staverman is the uh, name of the head coach? You mentioned before a guy we'll talk to uh, talk about in a couple of, couple of minutes, uh, Slick Leonard. Uh, but uh, the first coach of the Pacers was not Leonard. It was this guy named Larry Staverman. What about him? Why was he named? Where'd he come from? Any Any background on him? Yeah, he uh, had been an assistant coach at Notre Dame. Uh, 
for a couple of years. He had played in the NBA, had played in the ABL, uh, so had some pro basketball experience, and then had become an assistant coach, Johnny D, at Notre Dame. He was not the first choice by any means. Uh, again, Oscar Robertson was the first choice to be a player coach, but it didn't take long for the people in Indianapolis to realize Oscar's really not serious about this. We can't wait on him. Uh, you know, we are going to go out and find a coach. They uh, talked to Ed Jucker, who had coached Cincinnati to two national titles in the early 60s and was out of coaching at the time, doing broadcasting in Cincinnati. He was a big name. He uh, wound up uh, that same year taking the Royals head coaching job, uh, claiming he wanted to do, even though Indianapolis had made him a better offer, he wanted a major league job, he called it, major league. So he turned down the Pacers. They talked to a guy named Jim Holstein, who was the coach at St. Joseph's College in Rensselaer, Indiana, who had played briefly in the NBA. Um, Mike Storm was looking for people with some professional experience, some NBA experience. And Holstein was a successful small college coach, but he wasn't going to risk a stable college job for this new league that, you know, might not last even through the first year. So he, they never came to agreement, never had a serious negotiation. They weren't willing to give him like a three-year guaranteed contract or anything like that. So that didn't work out. I think they made inquiries to some other people. George King, who was the coach of Purdue, his name came up. He had played in the NBA, was uh, was uh, doing well at Purdue. But uh, I don't think there was anything serious there. So it came down uh, to Larry Staverman. And Staverman was suggested, recommended by Slick Leonard, because Slick had coached Staverman in Chicago uh, with the Zephyrs. And then uh, Mike Storen, the first GM, was a Notre Dame alum, a proud Notre Dame alum. So he no doubt had contacted Johnny D uh, for recommendations. Maybe, I don't know, he might have even asked D if he wanted to coach the team. And D recommended Staverman. So signs started pointing toward this Larry Staverman guy who had pro experience as a player and had two years of coaching experience at Notre Dame. And he was announced as the head coach in June of 1967 at the same press conference in which the Pacers uh, announced their nickname. And not a bad first season, right? You had a, a team that uh, almost uh, was 500. They were, they started out out of the uh, right out of the gate. They were five and zero on their uh, in their first uh, number of games, and uh, they wound up with a 38 and 40 record, uh, good enough for third place in the Eastern Division. And and you know they made the uh, the playoffs, maybe not too hard with 11 teams, but uh, all in all, not a not a bad first season. I I gather. Were there any sort of notable uh, moments in that sort of first season? I guess either. Uh, you know, in terms of attendance, in terms of play, uh, you know, did, was there inconsistency? Um, Staverman at least seems like he had a pretty good handle on the situation and, the, and his players. Yeah. I mean, Staverman, you know, to sum him up, was a knowledgeable coach and a really nice guy, not probably hard-nosed enough to coach pro athletes, uh, but that was just his personality. Just to, you know, you talk to his former players, oh, he was a nice guy, you know, but at the same time, admit that he wasn't tough enough. I mean, Jerry Harkness summed it up well when he said Staverman was the kind of coach you wanted to win for, but Stick Leonard was the kind of coach you did win for. So they got through the first season pretty well, and like you said, got off to a great start. That was primarily because Mike Storen had his act together, and the Pacers were just more organized than other teams. You know, they had had uh, not only the open tryouts in June, but the, the guys that they kept from those tryouts uh practice two or three nights a week and throughout, you know, August, September, they had a real training camp in September, a really 
challenging training camp. So when the season began, uh, their guys have been playing together a while and they're in shape. And some of the other ABA teams were just kind of operating on the fly at that point, just trying to get their act together. So that helped the Pacers get off to a really good start. And like you said, they were 38 and 40 that first season. Uh, there were some notable moments, no question. Um, Jerry Hardness, uh, about a month into the season, hit an 88-foot game-winning three-pointer in Dallas at the buzzer. You know, just flung a shot from a few feet in bounds the length of the court and banked it in for a game-winning three-pointer, which for a long time was the longest shot in the history of pro basketball. Uh, Baron Davis actually years later hit one that was regarded as an 89-footer. But um, that was a big deal, and it was kind of typical of how things were going early on. Like, everything was just going great. You know, the fans were coming out, the team's winning, they're throwing in game-winning three-pointers at the buzzer. You know, everything was really going well. But as time went on, the rest of the league kind of caught up with the Pacers. And they did make the playoffs, but uh, it became a struggle, and some cracks were forming that first year. against Haverman, didn't totally have the respect of the players, didn't have command of the situation. They started playing as individuals uh, for a while. Uh, should probably mention that the Pacers did host the first ABA All-Star game. Uh, no league had ever had an All-Star game in its first year of existence. You can imagine how difficult that would be, but Mike Storen took on that challenge. They played it at Butler, took a lot of political wangling and uh, a nice cash payout to get Butler to let the pros use its field house because they were still mad about the Olympians experience and, you know, being stained by that, their association with the Olympians, but they played the AB all-star game. The Pacers lost close to $30,000 on doing that, but it was great exposure for the league. I mean, the Pacers really took a hit there, but it got a, not really a national broadcast, but regional markets around the country. It got into New York and it got into LA in a lot of bigger cities, so a lot of people, the first ABA game they ever saw was that All-Star game, and it was a good game. And, you know, Cliff Hagan, who had played in the NBA, was in it. Um, guys like Larry Brown and Mel Daniels and Roger Brown and Freddie Lewis and Bob Nedelicki and, you know, good players were in this game, Connie Hawkins. Um, so it was a good show, and even though the Pacers took a bath, at least presented the league in a positive light. Uh, so that was crucial. Um I don't know if you want to get into the Reggie Harding story, but that was certainly quite a chapter for the Pacers. Sure, let's hear uh, it. Seven Absolutely. Foot. Okay. Reggie Harding, I mean, he would be just a great 30 for 30 documentary subject today uh, if he were alive or if people who knew him were alive. He was a seven-footer out of Detroit, out of the streets, um, was basically drafted out of high school by the Pistons. He had gone to a he had not gotten his degree in high school, but he went to this prep school or whatever you want to call it in Tennessee and then got drafted by the Pistons. He had to sit out a year to be eligible. He was a really promising seven footer who has a, you know, 22 year old kid was playing well against the likes of Chamberlain Russell in the NBA, but he just did not have his act together. You know, a guy from the streets, always late, always in trouble all these petty crime issues uh, always got by because of, you know, the fact he was a basketball player, always given second chances, but he played a few years for the Pistons. Um, well, they finally gave up on, on him and he played a little bit for the Bulls. Then they gave up on him when he was missing practices and so forth. 
but the Pacers' first year, Bob Nedelecki, the starting center, came down with mumps. <laughs> and George Peoples, the backup center, had the flu. The Pacers were desperate for a center, and they signed Reggie Hardy. They had you know, heard of him, probably didn't know the complete story of his background, but they signed him on a per-game contract, and he comes in and plays really well. Once he gets in shape and gets going, I mean, he is playing really well, outplaying Mel Daniels, the future Hall of Famer, in a couple of individual matchups. So things are looking up uh, tremendously for the Pacers, and they're talking about the possibility of a championship season. They're beating Pittsburgh, the eventual champion. They're beating Minnesota, the second-best team in the league. Uh, but Reggie Harding keeps screwing up. He'll, you know, they'll have a break in the schedule. He'll go home and not come back in time for practice. So he'll show up late for a game. You know, it was always something. And finally, they suspended him uh, before the playoffs. Uh, and so they played without him in the first round of the playoffs to Pittsburgh and got swept. So, you know, it was, if not for that, again, that turned out to be lucky because that created the possibility of getting Mel Daniels if Reggie Harding had finished that first season in good shape the Pacers would have brought him back and never gone looking for another center. But uh, he was just a great story because he was a nice guy. I got his autograph as a kid when I saw him at the airport one time. Everybody liked him, but everybody was just exasperated by him because he just kept screwing up. Uh, coming from the streets of Detroit, never met his dad. Mom was an alcoholic, gave him up for adoption. You know, just a troubled kid, but a nice kid and a great talent. But he just never kept it together long enough. And after the Pacers let him go, he went back to Detroit and actually spent time in jail. Seemed to be getting his life turned around after he got out of jail and wound up getting shot and killed by somebody in Detroit. So really a tragic story. That is tragic. I, I, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, though, you, you hinted at a, sort of another player on that team and for a number of years on the team who um, also stood out for for other reasons is uh, – it's Bob Nedelicki, otherwise known as Neto. You want to kind of get into his little story there? He was quite a, quite the showman, quite the uh, quite the mod type player uh, with the, the haircut. <laughs> yeah, ladies man, kind too. of the Joe Namath. You know, Indianapolis's answer to Joe Namath, I guess. Neto came out of Iowa. Uh, in fact, was once voted, uh, and again, not too many years ago, voted the greatest player ever to come out of the state of Iowa. But he. Uh, was a guy who only played one year of high school basketball, but by playing AAU games, got a scholarship to Drake and played at Drake and was good. Uh, but he was a flaky guy. Uh, he was His dad was a surgeon, so he grew up in a house with a lot of money but didn't have a close relationship with his dad. And he just kind of roamed wild and free, driving a Corvette around town, uh, brought in these exotic pets, ocelots and lions and snakes and all this kind of thing. Uh, colorful guy in that regard. And he would play really well in college at times, but then he would get uh, suspended for a game because he'd come late to practice, that kind of thing. was always a headache for the coach. But for whatever reason, the Patriots drafted him in the third round of the very first ABA draft. And keep in mind, the first ABA draft was held just a couple of weeks after the Pacers hired their general manager. And all the ABA teams, you know, nobody obviously had a scouting department. So these ABA teams kind of pooled all their information they could gather. They would read the college basketball magazines and rely on whatever institutional knowledge they had about college players and kind of pooled all their information at the first ABA draft, which was held in Oakland. And um, so the Pacers, for whatever reason, drafted Bob Nedelicki in the third round. 
He's told me he had a guaranteed contract. My notes and information indicates otherwise. I can't say for sure, but he did make the team coming out of their tryout and hung on during training camp. It was a, just a gifted guy. He could run and jump. Uh, he could score. He had a hook shot. He had a mid-range jumper. He just had a lot of natural ability, and he was a highly intelligent guy, so he caught on to things quickly. But he was a flake in his own way. You had to kick him in the behind constantly to keep him motivated. And uh, he was both a great asset as an all-star caliber player, but also a great headache for his coaches who always had to try to come up with ways to motivate him. And apparently a good bar owner, too. Nettos in the Meadows? Yeah, for a couple of years, uh, that was the hot spot in town. And believe me, Indianapolis didn't really have hot spots in, in that era. But this was the place where the Pacers would go after games and players from opposing teams would go after games. And it was kind of a popular hangout. In a, it was in a shopping center uh, called Netto's, and it was in the Meadow Shopping Center. So Netto's in the Meadow's. And uh, he had a red, white, and blue light uh, looking like an ABA ball hanging out front. And a lot of guys would go there. And there's there some stories <laughs> that come out of Meadows in the Meadows. Uh, and I'll protect, like, for example, the Pacer player who wound up on the dance floor one night making out with a beautiful woman who turned out to actually be a man, <laughs> a cross-dresser. You know, that kind of story comes out of Meadows in the Meadows. And, uh, but it lasted for two or three years and then he sold it and uh, moved on. But for the people who um, were there, uh, it remains kind of a colorful chapter in the city's history. None of this to any ABA fan uh, sounds uh, in the least bit odd, right? These stories, <laughs> these no. types of players, the uh, the personalities involved, the flakiness, all of it seems just, just right at home, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was the ABA. You know, it, it was the times. You know, think about the late 60s and early 70s, the, the fashions of the time. Uh, here's this ABA with this red, white, and blue ball and a three-point shot that changed the way the game was played. You know, simple basketball, not too much concern about defense, just trying to outscore each other. And, uh, you know, the music and everything that was, you know, uh, kind of uh, earmarking the late 60s, early 70s, you know, that – factored into the ABA and the fans were reading it up. So yeah, you had a player who was a bar owner. You had, you know, players with huge afros. You had all kinds of, uh, you know, you had, uh, uh, in Miami, you had the ball girls wearing bikinis. You had uh, all kinds of weird promotions, um, yeah, things that people wouldn't even conceive of today. But yeah, that was all pretty typical of the ABA. All right, before we get into that sort of second season, which is is pretty much uh, kind of the, the climax of, of of your your book and and, and the focus of uh, of of the conversation, um, maybe it's important to also step back and sort of give a sense of uh, how the team uh, was received in the community. You mentioned the star, and obviously it's pub, uh, publicity efforts around it. Um, but you know the, the the Coliseum, right? The Indiana State Fairgrounds, now known as the Indiana Farmers Coliseum, and since long rehabbed. Uh, was not necessarily the, uh, shall we say, the crown jewel of the ABA venues, right? Um, and I, no. get, I get the sense that that, uh, uh, not only for the first season, but over the, the seasons that followed, became uh, a source of contention and, uh, um, I don't want to say a, a, a mutual uh, dislike, but certainly some real consternation, I guess, when it came to playing conditions and, and, and the future of the franchise going forward. 
Yeah, the Coliseum, you know, really didn't care whether a basketball team played there or not. The State Fair Board, um, which ran it, they were doing fine. They, you know, they had all the events there uh, for related to the State Fair, and they would have other things there. They'd have concerts. The Beatles played at the State Fairgrounds in the uh, in September of 1964, for example. So big name entertainers would go through there. Uh, so they were doing fine financially. They didn't really care that much about having an ABA team. They charged the Pacers a lot of money, more than other teams played, paid uh, at the facility. And they weren't really, uh, you know, doing their job. You know, they yeah. didn't keep the place clean. Uh, they didn't provide the things they were supposed to provide, the basic necessities. Uh, you know, there was one time that first year when there were there was a Friday-Saturday uh, back-to-back set of games at home, and they didn't even bother to clean it out after the Friday game. You know, so people showed up for the Saturday game, and there's all this trash laying around the floors. You know, I mean, I guess the Coliseum people figured they could save some money by waiting till after Saturday's game to clean it up. You know, things like that were going on. Mike Storm was constantly complaining about what they weren't doing, that things that were called for in the contract or just common sense things. The uh, visitor's locker room was a joke. Uh, I'm told one shower head in there. The pacer locker room was hardly luxurious. So very uh, basic uh, facility to play in. It smelled a bit because, you know, during the summer you'd have barn animals in there. Uh, you could smoke at games back then, so you'd have this cloud of smoke hovering over the floor, which was true in every arena back then when you could smoke out in public. Uh, so it smelled. It was dark. It was dingy, uh, but the people who went to the games have <laughs> really fond memories of going to those games because of the atmosphere. But certainly by today's standards, it was a dump. Well, okay, it didn't seem to stop the team from uh, thinking enthusiastically about the next season. And and I think there are two sort of seminal events, right, that sort of kind of defined that sort of second uh, and, and championship finals uh, playing team, uh, one of which was – this uh, this uh, seemingly uh, tremendous trade uh, at the beginning of the season that uh, that brought in the uh, aforementioned Mel Daniels. You want to sort of give a sense of sort of what what was behind? Yeah, that? one of the great trades in the history of professional basketball, the most one sided trade probably ever that I've, I'm aware of. Um, at the end of the Pacers' first season, like I mentioned earlier, the Pacers uh, had suspended Reggie Harding. were ready to give up on him. Uh, and at the same time, the Minnesota Muskies are moving. They did not draw well in Minnesota. And uh, they need cash. They need to pay their franchise fee to the league. They're, they're moving. Uh, so they don't care what the fans in Minnesota think about what they're doing. And the fans in Miami don't know what's going on yet. That's where they're moving to. So uh, long story short, the Pacers were able to convince them to sell them or trade them, Mel Daniels, for $100,000 and two players. Those two players were Ron Koslicki and Jimmy Dawson, who had hardly played at all that first season. They were basically nobodies. They were throw-ins. Uh, I think the Pacers was just kind of lucky there, or happy to unload them. And $100,000. And it wasn't easy for the Pacers to come up with $100,000. One of the Lafayette investors, Lynn Treese, has given most of the credit for providing that money. He owned a bunch of Burger Chef fast food restaurants throughout the state of Indiana, so he had the money. And uh, they 
got $100,000 to the owner of the Minnesota franchise, which is moving to Miami, and landed Mel Daniels, who had been the rookie of the year in the uh, ABA that first season. Mel was the only uh, player who was drafted in the first round of the NBA draft in 1967 who went to the ABA instead. All the other NBA first-round picks went to the NBA, and why not? Because who knows if this ABA deal is going to make it. Uh, But Mel got a better offer from Minnesota than he had gotten by the Royals. So he goes to the ABA, becomes Rookie of the Year, should have been MVP in that first ABA All-Star game, but the voting was taken too soon before he led a late comeback. So Larry Brown got MVP of the first ABA All-Star game, but Mel deserved this. He was a great player, Uh, probably the second-best center in the league behind Connie Hawkins, who was the MVP of the league that year. But nonetheless, a great talent out of New Mexico where he had been like, a, I think, a second or third team All-American. And the Pacers get him. And that's really what pushed it over the top. You know, the Pacers had been a 38-40 and 40 team, and suddenly they were in the rookie of the year. Uh, to add to that mix, uh, that was just absolutely huge. You could probably argue that the Pacers would not exist today if not for that trade because if they had gone off being a 500 team and not winning championships – at some point, the city probably gives up on them, and they have to cease operations because they're not making any money, and then the city wouldn't have an NBA team today. Well, and you'll see Mel Daniels' number, number 34, retired, hanging from the rafters of, uh, you know, at current Pacer games. And, and you know, in uh, in March of 69, he, had to, he uh, lit up the Nets for 56 points and 31 rebounds in one game. I mean, imagine. <laughs> and he, was also, yeah. he also became the MVP of the league that year, so it wasn't uh, – it wasn't like uh, he uh, he was um, uh, any worse for the wear for not not winning the MVP of that uh, All Star game. But th- let's um, let's also look at the first uh, couple of games of that season because th- despite having uh, a firecracker in in, in Daniels, uh, the team did get off to a kind of a slow start and went two and seven in their first nine games and a coaching change, which would also affect the uh, future trajectory of the team. Yeah, that was the second big thing which kind of ensured the survival of the franchise. Uh, Although the Pacers had Mel Daniels, Roger Brown, two future Hall of Famers, Freddie Lewis, an all-star guard, Bob Nedelicki, an all-star forward. They have four all-stars on their roster, and they start out the next year one and seven. Uh, Things just weren't working under Staverman. They were losing close games, and it wasn't necessarily his fault. They were missing a lot of free throws, you know, and it seemed like the attitude was okay, but it was not working. And the Pacers had a three-game road trip out west. And the decision was made before the trip, but the decision was made to hire Slick Leonard before they went on that trip. Staverman's last game was the third game of that trip in Los Angeles. And Mike Storr and the GM told him the morning of the game, I'm sorry, we have to let you go. Uh, It's your call whether you coach the game tonight or not. Uh, but I'm, you know, we're just going to have to make a change. Staverman uh, agreed to coach the game. He didn't say anything to his players about, I've been fired. You know, they went out and won the game. Los Angeles was a bad team anyway. It didn't take a, a lot to win the game, but they did go out and win the game. And Staverman didn't even tell the players after the game that, I, hey, this was my last game. Uh, as he told me when I talked with him, he just walked to the other end of the arena and started crying. Uh, so they were two and seven at that point. They come home, there's a break in the schedule, and that's when the hire Slick Leonard. Slick had, as I mentioned, helped direct that open tryout in June of 67. 
and he was supposedly a scout for the team. I don't think it was a paid position, but he would be at games occasionally. He had interest. He had coached the Baltimore Bullets and then let go in 1964, was living in Kokomo, Indiana, about an hour north, and selling graduation supplies for a company called Herf Jones, selling class rings and graduation supplies, invitations, that kind of thing. He didn't really, he wasn't going to give up that job to coach in the ABA when it was formed. And I think they were leery of him because he had a reputation as kind of a wild man. Um, but after Slick saw the team that first year and after they acquired Mel Daniels, he realized this team's got some talent. You know, they could win. And he realized that, look, I could coach this team as kind of a sideline activity. You know, they, I don't have to give up my job with Herb Jones. We will practice at night. I'll drive down from Kokomo for practice. My wife can help me with my job. And, uh, you know, I could kind of maintain my sales job and still coach this professional basketball team. So he kept both jobs. And he gradually turned it around. He took over when they were two and seven. They started one and seven, but they were two and seven when he took over and gradually changed the culture of that team. And by the end of that year, there were the ABA finals. How long did he keep that uh, dual job thing going? I mean, it kept, couldn't have lasted long given that success that he ultimately had by right. the end of the season. He kept it a few more years. You know, he did. Uh, he would sometimes have meetings with clients like uh, in a restaurant near the Coliseum before the game, or he would you know, give tickets away to school principals or people like that who he needed to sell to and kind of to conduct his business around the games. Uh, the fact he was the Pacers coach just enhanced his image and name around the state. I think he hired people to make some of the calls for him, uh, the call in the school. He would close the deal. His wife, Nancy, who's just a great administrator, um, and a sharp businesswoman kind of organized it for him behind the scenes and their kids would sit on the living room floor and package the things they were mailing out, the graduation supplies they were mailing out kind of became a family operation. So he actually hung on to that Herb Jones deal for a few years after he became the coach. Well, look, this is a guy who stuck with the franchise, not only for the rest of the uh, ABA uh, run, but also uh, a bit into the, uh, into its uh, run in the NBA and is obviously still, uh, very involved with the Pacers. I believe he still calls, not maybe not all the games, but uh, is a broadcast color man for uh, the Pacer uh, local broadcast and was uh, inducted in the Hall of Fame himself in 2014. So, you know, this this all sounds like, you know, these are two two seasons and we're, we're maybe sort of can sort of uh, corral this at the end of the second season. I mean, they made it all the way to the championship series. And it seems like, even though they're, they're, despite losing to the uh, Pat Boone-owned Oakland Oaks, uh, that had really turned it around themselves that season. It really seemed like uh, this team was uh, either by luck or happenstance or hard work or maybe a combination of all those things, uh, really on a solid footing, perhaps more than any other ABA franchise, and, uh, and, and, and set for success for however long the ABA lasted uh, and maybe elsewhere as it ultimately became. Yes, and, and you're right. It was a combination of hard work, dedication, and luck. You know, just the dumb luck of getting Roger Brown, of getting Mel Daniels, of getting Slick Leonard, you know, off the road in Kokomo to coach the team. It, very, it was very fortunate that all this came together, but it also took a lot of hard work and a lot of uh, dedication from the ownership group who never did make money on the franchise. So, and the, the Pacers kind of propped up the entire ABA because of the fan interest. You know, this is the city that drew the best. 
players wanted to play here. Um, and players look forward to coming here to play. The Pacers, in fact, hosted some double headers where a team from another city like Houston would give up a home game to come play here as part of a double header because they'd make more money doing that, uh, taking a share of the gate. So they kind of propped up the entire league and by their success that, you know, they got on national television, that kind of thing. So, you know, the, the Pacers were lucky to survive themselves and by their survival, the ABA was able to survive for a while. And of course, a bunch of ABA championships and, and, and all of that. Um, I don't want to gloss over the the, the rest of their history, but obviously the the uh, uh, your book the uh, uh, called Reborn: The Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis is is it does spend most of its time focused on those first two arguably seminal years, but perhaps you could give some insight into um, you know the 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 rest of the story, I guess, in terms of the city of Indianapolis, uh, its uh, sort of budding and growing, I guess, professional stature. Uh, and uh, and ultimately, what became uh, a more solidified love affair with the Pacers, and uh, frankly, even uh, to the point of 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 helping a bit of downtown Indianapolis when it came to a new arena, and and sort of doubling down on that love affair and that uh, that belief in this team uh, for the betterment of that uh, of the city. Yeah, no question. You know, the success of the Pacers uh, brought the city together in a lot of ways. Uh, the only thing going on that brought together people of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, different uh, financial status, you know, rich people, poor people. The top ticket for the Pacers when they began was $4. <laughs> it's four, three, two, and $1.50. You get into a game for $1.50. And so, you know, anybody with a job basically could afford to go to games. And that it brought the city together, created a lot of excitement because they were good. They, they started winning championships. Their first championship is 1970. And uh, they won again in 72 and 73. And it really was a sensation, you know, that, you know, all the baby boomers like myself are in high school, college, and they're really excited about this team and this uh, league and the style of basketball play. And it became pretty apparent that, look, the Fairgrounds Coliseum isn't an adequate facility. They need to get something better. It was really big enough. Some people will tell you, oh, the Pacers sold out every game. Well, no, they didn't. The Coliseum sat something like 9,100 people for capacity. The Pacers never averaged more than about 7,100 fans per game, but they would sell out playoff games and the bigger regular season games. So, you know, there was a real need for a new arena. And Richard Luger, uh, who's now a retired senator, uh, was the mayor of Indianapolis at that time. And he, there were some people were trying to, talk about building a, an arena out in the suburbs, that kind of thing. And he finally stepped in and said, no, we're going to do this downtown. And he spearheaded the effort and they built Market Square Arena downtown, which opened in 1974. 74, 75 was the first season of Market Square. And that revitalized downtown. You know, there were, you know, I grew up here and as a kid, yeah, it was fun, exciting to go downtown and go shopping and so forth. But as Shopping malls opened around the city uh, here like they did everywhere else in the country in the early to mid-60s. Downtown was dying, and there was hardly any reason to go downtown unless you happened to work there. Uh, so the building of Marcus Square Arena began a revitalization uh, uh, trend in downtown Indianapolis and led to other things. And uh, you could argue that, you know, would the Colts be here if not for 
the pace for success downtown in, in the NBA. I mean, they're both coming in 1984. Uh, Indianapolis has kind of proven itself as a major league sports city. Uh, and downtown Indianapolis today, frankly, is doing great. There's all kinds of things going on. The Pacers are in a new facility, Bankers Live Fieldhouse, but they played at Market Square from 1974 up until 1999, and it was a great home, and a lot of great moments happened there, too. So, um, you know, the, if not for the success of the ABA Pacers, uh, downtown Indianapolis is probably not what it is today. Uh, at some point, maybe we can go a little deeper into the uh, the rest of the uh, of the years of this franchise. But uh, I guess uh, my sort of I guess my last general question uh, around this. And again, the, the book is called Reborn: The Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis. And it's a uh, it's a a very deep and uh, and well researched read about sort of the first two seasons uh, and uh, what became of those seasons afterwards. And obviously the uh, the beginnings of of basketball coming back to uh, to Indianapolis and Indiana professionally uh, prior to that, what what did you what did you learn from this exercise that maybe you didn't know about before? Was there something about this team that you thought you knew, even as a beat writer, that as you went back uh, and learned and uncovered some things that uh, perhaps either took you by surprise or maybe you didn't know or maybe look now at the team today? in a new light because of, uh, of, of the, the reach back into history. Yeah, I would say, you know, I knew a lot of the stories and the personalities just cause I had met them along the way, but probably the thing that impressed me most was that, uh, the original ownership group deserve a lot of credit and don't get enough credit because they, uh, were truly doing this just for the benefit of the city. They weren't hoping, I don't think any of them thought they were going to get rich off of this. They might've been hoping for that merger and it become a good investment, but they were going into a fully prepared to lose money and just wanted to take a chance on getting on this Indianapolis franchise, surviving and uh, staying in Indianapolis. They were wanting the city to become a better place. There was an organization called the greater Indianapolis project, Progress Committee, Greater Indianapolis Progress Committee. They called the Gypsy as the acronym. And a lot of local leaders were trying to make the city a better place. And part of that effort was to get a major league franchise of some kind. And once the pace was formed, some people came together and kicked in five, ten thousand here, twenty thousand dollars there to finance the thing. And they never did make money. They wound up having to sell it to another group. The people I've talked with say they lost between twenty and thirty thousand dollars on it. They're not bitter about it. They're just proud of the fact that they helped the patients get off the ground. So in my mind, a really impressive effort on their part, an altruistic effort just to try to get something major league for Indianapolis to have and to be perhaps the engine for growth in other areas as well. See, that's very interesting. And I and I wonder too, as as people go to, you know, today's games and obviously in the big, the gigantic business that the Pacers and the NBA and professional basketball are today, uh, how much uh, uh, knowledge there is sort of of those uh, civic shoulders, shall we say, that sort of uh, created them and boosted this team and this sort of fledgling little uh, American Basketball Association into you know, not only a, a thriving team in the NBA, but also a major contribution to the welfare of not only downtown Indianapolis, but the metropolitan area and arguably the state. Um, I'm just curious as to how much uh, throwback there is or how much true, you know, uh, deference or memory there is of some of those early days and and those uh, foundational building blocks or 
is that sort of a, a lost thing uh, in the community these days, given the modern era? I think it's kind of lost. Hopefully my book, you know, gives credit to those people and um, recognizes what they accomplished. But certainly most people here aren't aware of who those original investors were. You know, they all had, you know, real jobs. They were bankers or attorneys, that type of thing, who were just kind of kicking money in here and there. Um, you know, John DeVoe, who was probably the most uh, involved member of the founding group. He died at a Pacer game the second year of the franchise. He was an insurance executive. Um, his wife, who is still alive, told me, you know, he made about $40,000 a year salary at the time, which was a lot, which is, you know, more than the players were making, certainly. But he, you know, wasn't trying to get rich off of the Pacers. You know, he was trying to get it going so he could back out of it and go back to his real job. He didn't want to spend his life going to basketball games. But he was kind of typical of the selfless effort of these original investors. So they do not get enough credit um, there because there wasn't one guy, you know, today we can focus on the Simon brothers and Herb Simon, you know, they saved the franchise in 1983. Uh, it's a group of investors who kind of came and went Some were involved for a year or two. Some came in later, you know, it's difficult to recognize them as a body because it was kind of evolving and, you know, people coming and going and three of them were in Lafayette, Indiana <laughs> for that matter. So for those reasons, they really haven't gotten enough credit. Uh, the Pacers last year in their 50th season were recognizing their history and they were having decade nights and they had a sixties night where they brought back Mike Storen, the first GM, the players from those teams in the 60s and, you know, they invited the few remaining uh, members of the original group and uh, one of them was able to go, but he's not in very good health. And another one had a conflict and couldn't go. So, you know, these people are mostly gone now and uh, it's not in a position to be recognized. So I hope my book accomplished that. I hope it points out who these people were and what they were able to contribute uh, to the Pacers and indirectly to the city. All right, there you go. There's our uh, conversation with Mark Monteith. And uh, before you uh, have a conniption and uh, you can stop yelling at your devices, uh, yes, we do know that there were years of ABA funness from the Indiana Pacers uh, that we did not get to. And we will get to that, as well as maybe their first year or two segueing into the NBA. Uh, we're going to have Mark back. We're in the efforts now to get him uh, back on the show uh, to talk uh, about the rest of those years, at least. Um, we wanted to kind of focus uh, uh, specifically on those first two years and the prelude to uh, the uh, ABA's founding and the Pacers uh, launch in those first two years. Uh, largely because Mark's book uh, is uh, primarily focused on that little uh, mini era of such. Uh, the book, again, is called Reborn, The Pacers and the Return of Pro Basketball to Indianapolis. Uh, it is published by Half Court Press. Uh, it came out in October. It is a fun read. It's a deep. It's got some great pictures in there and some great writing and some great interviews. And again, it's the first two years or so of the franchise, but uh, we will have Mark back to talk about the rest of the story in a future episode. So keep a listen out for that. But in the interim, your homework assignment, of course, is to read and memorize as much text as possible from the book Reborn. You can find a link to Reborn on our website. That's goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search for episode number 41. Mark Monteith, you will see a link to the 
to the book and uh, as well as uh, more uh, background about our show, the, uh, the def- about the about the episode uh, he's trying to say, uh, as well as some uh, fun photos and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can also check out the uh, book uh, or buy it on Mark's uh, website as well, as well as all his other uh, creative endeavors and other books and stuff. Uh, and that's at markmonteith.com. That's Mark with a K. Monteith is M-O-N-T-I-E-T-H, markmonteith.com. And again, uh, we thank Mark, and uh, we look forward to having him back uh, very soon here on this little podcast to uh, complete, hopefully, the uh, initial story of the Pacers and their ABA slash early NBA days. Uh, For us, uh, we want to thank, of course, Podfly Productions, and in particular, uh, our friend Jerry Payne, who uh, went completely beyond the call of duty the last two weeks uh, in the midst of a uh, major, at least for Atlanta, snowstorm, and uh, learned uh, the uh, the finer arts of uh, snow shoveling in the process. So we thank him for going uh, out of his way and uh, uh, digging his way out and getting our show out and uh, into the ether for the last two weeks. And, you know, not much sympathy from somebody here in the Chicago metro area when it comes to snow, but, uh, you know, it's a rare occurrence down there. And uh, we thank Jerry for going that extra mile. Uh, We appreciate it uh, immensely. And we also appreciate Podfly and what he and his friends do down there. That's podfly.net, P-O-D-F-L-Y, podfly.net. If you're thinking about podcasting, if you're curious about it, want to get started, uh, there is no better place than Podfly Productions uh, to get going. So give them a try uh, if you're considering such. Uh, let's see. For us, GoodSeatStillAvailable.com is our website, as we said, and uh, that's where all our social links are found, too. Uh, you will find um, our email uh, address. You can send us email there, as well as all that other fun stuff I mentioned uh, earlier. On Twitter, find us at GoodSeatStill. Uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, there's a Facebook page devoted to us as well. You can like us there. And while you're liking us, uh, by all means, continue that liking and loving by rating and reviewing wherever you can, uh, wherever you download the show, wherever you subscribe to it. If there's an opportunity to kind of put a couple of words of goodness there in the re- in the review section, by all means, do it. It helps the algorithm for the show. It gets other people perhaps like you uh, to potentially consider the show. And uh, it's all, all good heat for Uh, growing our audience, which is now in the tens of thousands, I'm happy to report. And uh, we thank each and every one of you for going deep with us each week. Uh, All right. Until next week, uh, take care. Thanks for listening, as always. And uh, we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.